Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the most exciting town on earth, and that's Detroit, Michigan. Uh, today at the Ruther, we are having an art exhibit opening. And uh, usually we only do historical exhibits, but every once in a while we host artists who reflect our collections. And that's what this exhibit does today. Have you seen it yet, Troy? I have. What do you think? It's fantastic. Well, of course it's fantastic. It's inspiring. Inspiring? inspiring. In what way? You want to do art? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be inspiring. Inspiring about this woman's life? Yes. Yes. She's, as I say in the podcast, you'll hear it later, but also we must all agree Matilda Robbins is a badass. Indeed. Yeah. So, so this exhibit is called Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, an exhibit of art and archives dealing with the life of Matilda Robbins, socialist, IWW organizer, writer, and mother. Um, it will be up until November. Um, it was curated by Deborah Rice and Elizabeth Clemens. And Elizabeth right now is putting up other um, photos that we have of other badass women that we have. So there's uh, Elizabeth Flynn. There is Mother Jones up. There's a whole bunch of other women. Um, the, the exhibit showcases the captivating art of Matilda's granddaughter, Robin Henderson, in which she uses the scratchboard medium that creates a vivid black and white realism that coincides with the text from the memoir that Matilda Robbins wrote about her life. With the archival material on display as well together, portraying a rich and powerful story of a journey of a 13-year-old girl arriving in New York City in 1900 to later become an organizer for the Wobblies, while also wrestling with a romance, which just kind of gets a little juicy. It does, indeed. Yeah. And her dealing with her uh, daily life of supporting herself and raising her child, Vita. Um, this is a story about life in the early 20th century of, a, of an American woman immigrant woman who ignores the norms of society and to live your life as you please, raising the awareness of independence, equality of the sexes, of the living wage, and personal will. Now, also, there's a book that was put together from this memoir. Uh, you can buy it wherever you buy your books. Um, but it's called Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, a memoir from the early 20th century, which is illustrated by Robin Henderson. Now, Robin also says that this has been a collaboration in space and time between her grandmother and herself. So we are happy to have Robin come into our studio to tell us about this great collaboration. Well, hello, Robin. How are you? I'm fine, Dan. I'm really glad to meet you. I'm so glad to meet you, and we're so glad to have you here at the Walter Ruther Library again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really pleased to be back here in Detroit. Matilda keeps drawing me back here. She does, doesn't she? That's great. Well, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let me see. I'm an artist right now and have been for probably 50 years or so, but only recently have I started to really... Um, think of myself as, as having that as a, my only career. Uh, for many years, I was um, the facilitator of other artists' careers as the director of several community arts organizations. So I arranged a lot of exhibitions for people and did some exhibitions that I'm very proud of. But that's all behind me now, and I'm just really enjoying myself making art. I'm a mom and a grandmom, <laughs> and 
um, and I live in California. Cool. Okay. So we're here to discuss the memoir and your exhibit opening that's here at the Walter Ruther Library. Um, how did you come across this memoir from your grandmother? I'm not sure that anybody knew that she was actually writing a that's memoir. That's what I was curious about. Yeah. Uh, but after she died, my mother and I were going through her papers, and we came across this mo- the most lengthy document that was among them, and it turned out to be what we figured might be only the beginning of her story because it ends when she's in the in about the midpoint of her life but it was fascinating and my mom thought so too and she looked at at more of the things and she decided that her mother's papers really should be archived in a place that was for that purpose mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she decided that the Ruther was the place to send them we're a good place for it yeah, yeah. and and that then people would have access to them for ever right absolutely and and do you do you think that she wrote this for you all for you I believe that I believe that that was the intention it it seemed like it was she wrote another several stories that were addressed to us and and one of them was the detail, uh, a detailed um, discussion of her immigration story. And I know that that was meant for us. And I think, I don't think she was intending to see this published. In fact, Matilda was very modest about her um, writing achievements. We didn't find any tear sheets or printed copies of all the things, the places where she had, her, her writing had appeared in print um, among her papers, just these manuscripts. Really? Okay. And I don't know if you've seen the file here, but it's not very big. You know, it's just one little box. Right, right. Oh, interesting, because she wrote for so long. She wrote all her life. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. In English, in very, very literary English. (laughs) By a woman who didn't learn the language until she was 14. That's amazing. That's amazing. And she spoke English with a slight Back Bay Boston accent. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You adapted me, but she probably figured out this is how you're supposed to. She did not sound like her her mother tongue was Yiddish at all. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, before we get into her life. So we have an exhibit going up about her life that you produced, that you've been working on for a while, yeah. right? And I love that you use scratchboard because it really brings out that the black and white and the juxtaposition of the realism that you were imagining. Um, why don't you just describe, so since people are listening on this podcast, could you describe your, your artwork? So Yeah, they are, as you say, they're, sc- they're scratchboard drawings and... I felt that this medium was really appropriate to the period that the memoir takes place in. It it has the feeling of, oh, I don't know, kind of reminiscent of somebody like Rockwell Kent or or one of the illustrators or printmakers of of the twenties and thirties, and so I felt that it that medium lent itself. Well, it looks beautiful. It looks great. I think it looks wonderful, too, and I think the juxtaposition of the uh, photographs that come from the archive here uh, with some of the drawings that I made looking at those photos 
um, really give it a kind of depth that I, I really think make it look very nice. It does. It does. Yeah. It really just pops right out. Yeah. It does. Um, so let's talk about the immigrant girl. So when did Matilda come, where was she born, raised, and when did she come over to America, and what did she see when she got here? She was born in a little town, about 10,000 people, uh, near Vinitsia in Ukraine. Um, the town was called Litin, and uh, her grandparents owned an inn in that town. And it was during the period when anti-Semitism was really becoming very, very oppressive in that part of the world. And uh, they, it, they were finding it harder and harder to make a living. Um, the czar imposed taxes on Jewish merchants that were not imposed on Gentiles. And it made it too expensive to sell alcohol. So eventually her father left for the United States. And five years later, in 1900, her mother and herself and four siblings left too. My great-grandmother didn't speak any language but Yiddish, and she didn't read or write. My grandmother was well-educated, one of the first girls in her family to be educated, and she had been to probably what the equivalent of the eighth grade would have been in Russia. Well, that's that's amazing for a, a Jewish girl to go to, a, I, I assume it was a public, a type of public school. It was school. the czar school, yeah. It was where everybody went. Yeah, right. it was like a public school. Right. But usually it was run by the, by the czar and mm-hmm. probably ran by the church in a way, I imagine. Oh, yes. She, uh, she talks about an anti-Semitic teacher that she had that taught the uh, church Slavonic. She said it was a totally useless language, and she said boring, but you had to pass it in order to get a good grade, and so she she read the, and it was only liturgy, uh, church liturgy, so she, but Matilda, you know, just put her head down and went, went forward. It. Okay, so they, they, they made the crossing. They made the crossing, which was horrendous from her description, it's a wonderful, um, chilling description of, and the, the ship almost seemed like it was foundering and almost went under, but they managed to make it into New York Harbor, mm-hmm. and she saw the Statue of Liberty arising from the fog, and she said she had lots of romantic notions about democracy and freedom and her republic, and this was a, a this really was a symbol to her, the Statue of Liberty coming out, emerging from the fog, and she, she mentions that in her, in her memoir. But the rest of the time in New York was not very happy for her. She immediately uh, had to go to work because the family needed her labor to survive. And so she and her mother turned ties doing piecework at home, and then eventually she got um, work in a shirtwaist factory. She wanted to go to school, but she felt that she had to help the family out. Her father even wanted her to continue with her education, but she felt that she couldn't at that point. Well, in the book, it's very descriptive of her work and her life there. I mean, such a realism that she could recount the minute details of how much things cost and what the sounds and the smells. That 
amazes me that she remembers how much a loaf of bread cost or how much the newspaper cost or, you know, how much a hat cost or how much the rent was and exactly how much money she earned. $2.50 a week. For working basically six and a half days. Yeah, six and a half days a week, yeah. And probably 10-hour days. 10-hour days, yeah. yeah. 50 or 60 hours a week. That was life then. Yeah. <laughs> and then they moved out of Lower East Side. They moved to Bridgeport? Yeah, they moved to Bridgeport, which was at, in those days, as she says, called the Essen of America <laughs> because there was so much heavy manufacturing going on there. Yeah. And her brother worked at the Remington Arms factory, and she worked in corset factories. Um, several. There were several in Bridgeport, and she... And, th- th- of course, the system in those days was that when the there was not much work, then the, everybody was laid off. So she was constantly, you know, working furiously and then, you know, laid off and looking for work. So and she, and that's quite good detail in the in the book about that, too. Mm-hmm. And she just did piecework, too. She did p- piecework. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. It's, it still goes on today throughout the world. But the piecework is that she was like, just do a little piece over and over and over and over. Never saw the final product. Right. Uh, except maybe in ads in the newspaper. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but but she, um, she describes how deadening that kind of labor was, where you just ran the stays through the gores hour after hour, day after day, doing the same process over and over again. And she was very aware. Matilda was incredibly smart, and she read a lot. Um, and she she was very aware of how, how that kind of labor really fit into uh, the whole – it colored your whole life and how it, it deadened your sensibilities to a lot of other things and made you long for, you know, any kind of entertainment – that would just dis- distract you on the during the time that you didn't you weren't at your at your machine. And wh- where did she find entertainment in Bridgeport? Um, she went to a lot of socialist lectures. <laughs> That's entertainment for her. <laughs> it was it, and there were plays, and that was an interesting thing because it was um, in the theater that she met my grandfather. He was a, a radical, but he was also an actor, very handsome. They were doing modern plays at the time, Ibsen and Shaw, and plays that had social me- messaging that she was... And she went to lectures and concerts, and she read a lot. And not just the funny papers like her co-workers, but, you know, serious literature and, and history and so forth. Do you think that working in these factories, working these deadening, minute jobs radicalized her where she wanted to learn more about how can I make a change or how things can change? Absolutely. I think it was her own life experience that radicalized her. It wasn't seeing somebody else suffering. It was experiencing it for herself and also realizing that her co-workers were experiencing the same kinds of issues. And she was very sympathetic to the married women who had not only, you know, working all day long at these machines, but then went home and had a family to cook and clean and and take care of. Um, And that was not the kind of life she wanted for herself. 
Right, right. So did she start organizing here there in Bridgeport? Um, or started meeting? So she, you said she met her grandfather, the main... Yeah. Your grandfather, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, was this all part of her rising up and trying to organize and being radicalized? And was it all here in Bridgeport? I don't think she had the idea of organize, being an organizer at that time. I think she had more of, a, a, of an idea of participating in the struggle as a, you know, as a uh, working toward with, with other people. And she was always very communally um, oriented in that way. She did try at one point to organize some of the girls in her factory, and and there's a funny little story in it where she confronts in her book where she confronts the boss and asks him uh, with two other girls, and they ask for increased wages and and so forth, and he looks at them and sneers and says. Um, you're pretty well-dressed girls for people complaining about not earning enough money. And that really offended her. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it did. And you hear the same kind of thing today. Yeah. Oh, you do. You do. Yeah. You do hear that kind of stuff. All right. So when – all right. Here in Bridgeport, she's educating herself, radicalizing, mm -hmm. meets this handsome actor, and I'm sure he influenced her as well. Oh, I'm sure he did, yeah. yeah. There is a story. Now, this book is a lot about how she's a radical uh, organizer, but there's that love story. Yes, there is. There and is. that's one of the delicious things about the book. It is juicy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of relationship did they have? He was married, right? He was married with two children, two mm -hmm. girls. Um, and uh, he had gotten married very young when he was 18. It was a teenage marriage practically, or indeed. Um, and my grandmother believed in free love. And it was going around that those attitudes were starting to go around, especially in radical circles at that time. And I think it was I think it was great for the men, particularly for my grandfather. <laughs> he he thought, you know, free love was just wonderful. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and Matilda was was, you know, amenable. When you read her story and when you see the kind of relationship they had, I still cannot quite fathom why she stayed in the relationship as long as she did. The interesting thing was, too, that sometime after they had been involved with each other, Ben's wife bore another girl. So then there were th three daughters that Ben had by his wife, but he was still carrying on with Matilda and also carrying on dalliances with actresses that he met when he was on the road. He was quite the gay he, blade. He was enjoying the free love yes, aspect. Yes, he and was. And talking the talk yes. and doing that thing. But she, but Matilda realized that this guy, he was not really what he seems. That's right. She did. But it, I, I can't figure out why it took her so long, but it did. I think the only thing I can figure out, and this is kind of embarrassing for a granddaughter to say about her grandmother, <laughs> but I think it was the sex. <laughs> I was about to say that. I was about to figure out how to ask you that, but... How was that reading that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, since I'm the same age as Matilda was when she died, <laughs> I think I've seen it all. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said it first. Okay. <laughs> 
Probably. No, honestly, probably. It was an that's the only thing I can. I, that's the only thing I can figure out. And I think he was very good at being apologetic. It's. I mean, it's the same story that you hear today about women who are abused. Yeah. You know that they 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 there there are all these heartfelt apologies, and it'll never happen again. And then it does. Right. Right. And, and you, yeah, you, in the movies and books you read constantly is still there. Yeah. It's like, why do I keep going back to him? Because he's hot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a hot and it's and great and it's fun mm-hmm. while it's there. Mm-hmm. But I know he's no good for me. Right. Yeah. And, and finally, sometime after my mother was born, I think after Vita was born, even then she held out some hope that maybe it could become a, a, a more stable relationship. Well, we wrap ourselves in that fantasy. Yeah. You know. But I think finally she realized that it just could not, it could not continue. And she cut it off and did not see him probably for another, I don't know, 30 years or so. Oh, okay. All right. Finally. Well, no, I guess it wasn't quite that long because my mother did meet her father finally when she was about 16. Okay. Still, though, she's finally said enough's enough. She, she, yeah. And, and really, in fact, she went so far as to uh, – she had a lot of photographs of the two of them together or of them in a group. And she went through and just sliced him out of the photograph <laughs> and kept the rest of the photo. <laughs> Remove and, him out of the picture. <laughs> yeah. So my mother didn't even know what her father looked like. Wow. Did she hear stories about him? Or? No, she would not. My grandmother would not speak about him. She would say that he existed yeah. and tell my mother, you know, who he was and what he did and so forth. But she just didn't want him around. She didn't want him mentioned. She really wanted to cut him out of her life. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, folks, that was such a great interview. We have so much more that you can listen to. So once Troy gets done with it, right, Troy? Eventually. We'll have soon. part soon. Very soon. Soon. We'll have part two for you to listen to. So stay tuned. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Also, you're supposed to drink warm milk? No. 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 Very bad. (laughs) Warm lemon water. Not hot. Not cold. Cold's bad for your throat. Okay. It's kind of like room temperature. All right. I learned that from Theo Bacall. Who? Oh, Troy. <laughs> Troy, Troy, Troy. He was one of. He was the first real big actor portray in Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. Also, he was president of the Actors Guild. Oh. Okay. For a while, and 
What movie? Oh, he had a cameo. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Do you ever see that movie? No, I haven't. It's a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, it was not bad, but it's, yeah. And, and we brought him in here. He came in here and looked at some of our Yiddish stuff. He did? Yeah, that was very cool. Ooh. Years ago. Yeah, he was doing a play at the Fisher. I'm so excited, even though I didn't know who he was uh, two minutes ago. We have his autograph. I'll show you. 